all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for joining me today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this year is drawing to a close, and it's a perfect time for me to kind of compile all of the questions that I get through email and social media and push those questions out to you guys and try and answer through some of those. And you can always email me, fit at mpbonline.org. Helping me out today is Kevin Farrell, Southern Remedy producer, and we're going to go through some of these questions that I get and save. All right. Good morning, Josie. This uh, first question says, I'm a 55-year-old female, started a regular exercise program three days a week over a year ago. I've been lifting weights, have improved my muscle mass, including my core, and just overall strength. My heart rate definitely gets up when I'm exercising. The question, I'm curious to know if I should add an aerobic activity to my training. Well, first of all, I smiled the entire time I was reading this email because it made me so happy that not only has this person started an exercise plan or program, but they've maintained it for over a year, which means they found something they enjoy. And that's my number one kind of tip or or rule when building an exercise plan or program is find something that you enjoy so that you want to continue to do it. And this person is starting to see uh, good returns on that investment, right? Getting stronger, building muscle mass, including core. And when we talk about core muscles, we're really talking about those muscles in the thoracic area. So our our, uh, abdominal muscles, our low back muscles, which all kind of keep um, help us with posture, which is going to help with back pain. But then also strong core muscles are going to keep us from um, falling uh, as often. So that's important as we age. So to get at the actual question, I was curious if I should add aerobic activity. Um, It's important to remember what aerobic activity means, which it's often called cardio. So that's that physical activity that gets our heart rate up. And this listener says that they do feel like their heart rate gets up during their resistance training or their their weight-based training that they're doing. And that's great. Um, But probably not the whole session are we meeting um, complete aerobic guidelines or getting that heart rate up and sustaining it up for this entire workout session. So instead of getting real hung up on how many minutes we spent doing the cardio or how many minutes we spent doing the resistance or any of that kind of stuff, 
we really just want to think about how do we have intentional movement on most days of the week, ideally every single day of the week. But this exercise plan is three days a week. So my kind of advice to this person would be, let's look at those two, you know, two other days of the week and see if we can just add in some brisk walking or a bike ride or swimming or dancing or any of those types of things that will get our heart rate up and kind of sustain it up for a little while. Not purely for the exercise exercise benefit of it, but for the mental health boost that we get when we're up and moving, um, for the impact that we have on our brain health as we are up and moving and delivering more blood flow around uh, to the body. Um, Helps with, if you have blood sugar issues, going to help with taking up some of that extra um, blood sugar. If we've got high blood pressure issues, going to help kind of increase uh, the the health of our blood vessel system so that our blood pressure is better. So intentional movement every day, whether that's 10 minutes, whether that's 20 minutes, whether that's 30 minutes, using that as a time to focus in on stress reduction and um, just improvement of mood as well as really good sleep. When we have intentional movement every day, uh, we tend to sleep better. And you may be going, well, what do you mean by intentional movement? And what I'm really meaning is movement that we are doing for the purpose of moving, not just our movement that we do as part of our our everyday, you know, getting up and going to the bathroom or um, taking the stairs at work or any of those kinds of things, but some intentional dedicated time for movement and focusing in on the relaxation piece of that. But I couldn't be more proud of this person for getting that exercise plan uh, started. And as always, we want to balance things. So if trying to start uh, adding things in is going to derail your efforts on the three days a week, by all means, continue with just the three days a week. But any additional movement is just going to be be gravy there. It's going to be good for you. Sort of a follow-up, I guess uh, maybe if you vary the types of intentional movement you in, incorporate into your, your exercise plan, maybe l- less boring, a little bit more exciting? Absolutely. Or, you know, think about if you're going to choose walking, right? where are you walking? Is it going to be an outside thing, which I prefer to walk outside? Not today, though, because it is very cold. Um, but I prefer outside walking, and I like to make it really mindful. So I like to focus on... What do I see around me? You know, right now we've got beautiful uh, foliage happening. Uh, We were kind of hanging out in that brown stage for a while, but now a lot of the trees, we've got beautiful reds and yellows and and different shades of brown. And so really trying to focus on that and get out of your head is a really good space there. If you're going to do you know, inside activities. For me, that can be a little bit, a little bit boring, just on the treadmill or on the bike, that kind of thing. So I try and pair it with something that I like. So I like books. I'm trying to get into audiobooks a little bit more. It's not going as well as I would like for it to be, but uh, I'm I'm trying to listen more to to books while I'm on the treadmill or the bike, that kind of thing, or a podcast or you know anything that you're kind of looking to expand your access to. Just kind of pull double duty there, but absolutely switch it up. Maybe we walk one day, maybe we bike another day, maybe we dance on another one. But finding what you enjoy is going to be the really important piece there. 
All right. Question number two says, I just moved to the area from Wisconsin, 43 years old, struggling to make new friends. I've noticed that I've started to feel more down since moving here, and I'm not sure why. Any suggestions? Well, I will stop complaining about the weather because I imagine it is much colder in, in Wisconsin. So you're prob- you, hopefully you're enjoying the, the little bit warmer weather that we have here. But this is very common when you move to a new area, especially if you're moving away from uh, somewhere that you've lived for a long time where you have a lot of family and friends support. It can be really hard. And as a an adult, it can be even harder to try and make those new friends. But it is so important. I'm really kind of proud of you for asking this question and asking for help because having social connection and social support is so crucially important for our mental health one, which is kind of fleshing out in this question a little bit, but our overall physical health as well. You know, we did a show a couple months back on the impact of loneliness on mental health, but also on cardiometabolic health and looking at blood pressure and blood sugar control in folks who report being lonely. So it is very, very important. So my tips kind of here are think about, do you have kind of interests that you enjoy? Are you a reader like me? Do you enjoy um, cross-stitch or sewing? Do you enjoy um, animals? You know, what is something that you enjoy and look for places to volunteer there, right? Maybe you volunteer at the local library, reshelving books or, you know, cleaning, whatever it is. Or you volunteer at the local animal shelter, walking dogs, feeding dogs, that kind of thing. One, it gets you out of your house, but two, it puts you into contact with people who have similar interests as you. And so that is much easier to kind of strike up a conversation and build build a friendship around a common interest. Much easier than just, you know, hanging out at your, you know, at a coffee shop or your kid's school and kind of hoping to meet some meet a kindred spirit there. So finding shared interest is really important. As well as looking at things like book clubs, there are online book clubs as well that you can um, look into if that's something that's that interests you there. Um, and then if uh, faith is an important part of uh, your life or spirituality, looking for um, uh, kind of a faith home, whether that be uh, you know a traditional church or non-denominational facility somewhere um, that you can have that shared connection again uh, and meet people that are kind of walking the same walking the same journey that that you're walking. Um, But it can be hard, but don't give up. Your person is out there. I guarantee you they're out there just waiting to make friends with you. Um, So again, look for those uh, kind of pockets of shared experiences and shared hobbies as a way to to break the ice and, and find your person there. All right, Kevin, what's next on our list? This one says, what type of diet should folks older than 65 be eating? Is there danger in any particular dietary pattern? Well, it's a great question because if there is one area of health that probably has the most confusion around it, it is what we should be eating. And we just flat over complicate the situation, right? So instead of thinking about what should I eat in my 20s and what should I eat in my 40s and what should I eat in my 60s and 70s, the answer is kind of the same thing, right? Well-balanced nutrition meets the needs of you regardless of, of what age you are. Now, 
for childhood nutrition, there are a little bit uh, different requirements just in terms of fat content and those kinds of things to help support that growing brain. But in terms of, you know, adolescence into adulthood and even later adulthood, the basis of what we should be eating is real food is the number one thing, right? So less uh, processed things and more whole sources of food as we can within the constraints of our budget, right? So I am never here to food shame or make you feel like you can't eat in a healthy way if you're on a limited budget. You absolutely can. But we want to strive as much as we can to add in products that are um, a little bit less processed and balance it out uh, with some things. So in terms of uh, folks older than 65, what immediately comes to mind there is do we have any kind of chronic medical problems or are we on any kind of medications? Because there may be some nutritional adjustments that need to be made depending on that particular situation. Um, If you are on something like Coumadin um, or Warfarin for, uh, you know, to keep your blood uh, slicker and thinner, then there can be some nutritional changes that we have to make there. Uh, In the past, we kind of just said, don't eat vitamin K rich foods, which cuts out a good chunk of uh, green leafy vegetables and things that are really good for our overall health. So now we focus more on consistent intake of that. So getting your um, medication to the right dose and then consistently consuming the same amount of, of vitamin K rich foods there which I really recommend working with a dietitian if you have access uh, to one to kind of help you build that out. If we've got chronic kidney disease, depending on how significant that kidney disease is, we may need to make some adjustments to your protein content uh, to help support that kidney health. But by and large, just a good, well-balanced nutrition plan is what we want to eat kind of regardless of our stage in life as an adult. And when I say balanced nutrition, that means fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, whole food sources of starches, and lean protein choices. And so if we break uh, the two most uh, misunderstood ones down, that would be protein and starches. And so from a starch standpoint, I get a lot of people who say, well, I can't have potatoes. And I'm like, oh, for why? Like potatoes are delicious. And it really depends on what we're doing to the potato, right? And where it fits into a healthy or well-balanced nutrition plan. A potato chip is not the same thing as a baked potato uh, in terms of nutrient profile. A baked potato, whether it be a white potato or a sweet potato or a purple potato or any of those other kind of potatoes out there, um, are going to ha- be loaded with vitamins and minerals. And when you consume the skin on it, you're going to get a big bump in fiber uh, as well. So uh, potatoes can be fine. It's if we deep fry them, then we're moving a little less uh, out of the well-balanced category, but not off limits, right? Potato chips can fit into a healthy dietary pattern as well. just depends on how much and what we're pairing it with. Um, Or if we take that baked potato and we put butter, sour cream, cheese, bacon on top of it, again, we're we're shifting a little bit farther away from that well-balanced potato that we're looking for um, on our plate. And then from a protein standpoint, when we're trying to pick lean protein sources, 
if you're a regular listener, you know I'm always going to talk about plant proteins, in particular my friend the bean. Uh, but beans make a wonderful lean protein source full of fiber, full of vitamins and minerals. But if you're not quite ready to, to jump on the bean train and have that be your protein source, then uh, looking at leaner animal-based uh protein choices, whether that be egg whites or uh, chicken or fish, uh, less on the red meat, but okay every now and then, but really, really less on the processed meat um, side of situations. So less bacon, less sausage, less ham, um, you know, Slim Jims, that kind of stuff, uh, just in terms of trying to balance out that health. And then the bulk of it just needs to be some good old fruits and vegetables and any fruit or vegetable that you enjoy and you can afford is fair game there. Now, the second part of this question was, uh, is there any particular dietary pattern that has a danger into it? Again, it kind of depends on what your medical history is, but usually if we are eliminating macronutrient groups, that is not well balanced and may lead to some detrimental health impacts. And for a quick review, those macronutrients are your carbohydrates, your proteins, and your fats. So eliminating one of those completely is kind of setting your setting you up for uh, not optimizing your health overall. Uh, meal skipping, uh, consuming large amounts of caffeine in place of meals, all of those things can have detrimental health impacts there. Uh, just as a quick follow-up to that one, um, I know from past programs, you're not a big fan of the word diet. Oh, no. Which indicates I'm doing something for a while, but then I'm going to yeah. quit. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I, I tend to use the word pattern or eating pattern or way of eating, those types of things, because the word diet is so commercialized. You know, it's the ketogenic diet or uh, the low-carb diet or the cabbage soup diet or the grapefruit diet or any of these things. And those just by nature of having rules around them make them much harder to stick to, usually makes them very restrictive, and usually makes people feel like they are on something. And so this time of the year, it just breaks my heart when I see folks say, well, I can't have that. It's not on my diet. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Um, Let's step back and think why we're, you know, truly, why are we doing this? What are we trying to accomplish? And uh, I hope that some joy is sprinkled in there and that we're trying to accomplish some joy this holiday season uh, and really set yourself up for success. So I really do uh, try to avoid putting someone on a diet or using the word diet. It's just things we need to eat more of, things we need to eat less of. Josie, I think I'm going to go on the uh, holiday office holiday Christmas party diet. So oh, it's full wonderful. of uh, you know cookies and yes. brownies and that sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> I think uh, all of us are uh, being exposed to that particular <laughs> diet right now. You know, it is the season of parties, and that can be okay. You know, I mean, the important part of that is the social connection piece, right? Like, I don't want you hiding in your office and not and missing out on the fellowship that occurs at, at different things. But I do want you to be smart with what you're choosing. And by smart, I'm, I'm referring back to those smart goals, right? And picking things that are specific and measurable uh, for you. So maybe it's we have um, one cookie and not five cookies uh, at each of our parties, right? While that's certainly, you know, I may get, I may get some pushback from that. People are like, did you just tell us to eat cookies? 
I said one cookie, not five cookies, right? Because I'm trying to build in some uh, mindfulness into what we're choosing and so that we are looking at all of the food choices at these parties and truly picking something that we want and not just eating things because they are there and really appreciating that food when you do eat it and not having that guilt associated with it, but not just mindlessly shoving stuff in. And that way we can enjoy a little something every time without uh, feeling like we just completely, uh, you know, waylaid all of our health goals for, for the year. So question four, Josie says, I just started doing an intermittent fasting diet and I'm struggling to maintain it. I find myself not able to fall asleep at night due to hunger and end of snacking. Should I keep going? Well, you, you have that word right in there, right? Where it says intermittent fasting diet. So let's talk about what intermittent fasting is intended to be and why it has been, what the, what the science is behind that, right? So intermittent fasting is intended to be reduced timed eating so that we are not eating from the moment we get up in the morning until the moment we go to bed at night, right? And consuming large amounts of calories over this kind of extended time. So another word for it, and one that I actually like a little bit more is uh, something called time-restricted eating. So it's consuming your calories within a certain set of time. Now, first and foremost, my question to this person would be, what are our goals? Like, what are we trying to achieve with this particular uh, dietary pattern? Because if it is simply weight loss, head-to-head research has not found the intermittent fasting in the long term to be superior to just regular, you know, balanced, calorie-restricted way of eating. So if weight loss is, is our, our main desire and you don't like it, then let's not do it, right? Let's find something that we do enjoy. Where there is a little bit more research and a little bit more evidence is on how fasting can improve kind of cellular aging and decrease our risk of certain cancers and those types of things. And so that's actually an exciting area of research that I'm looking forward to reading more about. But the best dietary pattern is going to be one that you can that you enjoy and that you're going to stick with and be able to do. And so what I hear right right here is we've put these boundaries around our food and then it's clearly not meeting our body's nutritional needs because we're hungry and that's keeping us from sleeping and sleep directly relates back into our cravings for different foods and our our need to snack and kind of feeling unsatisfied all the time so we've kind of gotten ourselves in a little bit of a cycle here right we've put really rigid restrictions around what we're eating we have um, compromised our sleep in order to do this and we're snacking at the end of the night so we've kind of shut down any benefit that we would be getting from this this type of eating. What does work about this is not putting calories, the bulk of your calories at the end of the day. Because when we go to bed and we go to sleep, our metabolic rate does go down. So we burn less calories while we're asleep. So if we have a whole bunch of calories at the end of the day and we go to sleep, we don't really burn through those before we start in the morning. So what intermittent fasting is not is just skipping meals, which is what I see people do all the time. They just skip breakfast or they skip dinner. 
And so they're having like a really small amount of calories in a shortened time frame. And that's not what we're getting at. True intermittent fasting is going to be well-balanced nutrition with a caloric uh, goal to support whatever your goal is, whether that's weight loss or weight maintenance, just in a shortened time frame. So if you're interested in doing intermittent fasting, again, let's see what our goals are. Let's see whether this is just going to be an added stressor on top of what you're already doing. But if you really want to try it, then let's build the correct calorie goal with the correct foods um, and shorten that that time window there to really kind of harness the power that we can get from that that evening fast there. Thanks for joining me today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, your host, and we've been going through my mailbag today, kind of cleaning up my end of the year messages that I get and answering questions that are important to you about how to stay healthy and fit. And before we dive into our next email question, we do have a caller on the line. So we're going to go to Gulfport and say good morning to Veeman. Hello. Good morning. Um, hi, I was hi. just calling about the, um, earlier you had mentioned about exercise and mm-hmm. uh, walking out, outside and it was really cold, but yes. so you didn't really want to. <laughs> um, uh, so my comment on that was, or I think it's, um, if you're going to exercise in the colder air, walk briskly, however, um, it's, you're actually going to burn more calories. Oh, it's great for you. There's going to be more benefit. So that was just my comment on that. There's additional benefit to it. Oh, absolutely it is. You know, I am just, I am a stick in the mud when it comes to cold weather and just really don't like it. But you are correct. Now, I would um, emphasize folks, if they're going to, uh, when you're going to do that, kind of dress in layers uh, and, and make sure that uh, you're using some moisture wicking uh, type of, of um, attire underneath so that you don't wind up getting overly cold from, from the sweat that you're going to generate. But you make an excellent point there yes okay i just wanted to comment on that absolutely i appreciate you doing that all right have all right. a good rest of your monday all right thanks all right. you mm-hmm. too bye-bye mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it definitely there can be a benefit to it. It all goes back to the what do you like and what will you do consistently? You know, and um, I've done running in the cold. You know, it just hurts my lungs. It hurts. It hurts everything. And my nose starts running. I can't tell if my nose is running. It's just the whole thing. Um, but there are a whole group of people who absolutely adore it. And so that's the beauty of exercise is that there's lots of options out there for folks um, and lots of varieties of places to to do it, you know, and finding a way to work that in is really important um you know here in in mississippi we've got uh hot or we got cold and a lot of times when i'm working with patients and i start to ask them about their exercise plan and they'll say well it's too cold to do that right now and then like clockwork in july they're gonna tell me it's too hot to do that and those are both valid reasons. And so knowing our temperature and our climate, then we have to come up with a backup plan. So if it's too cold for you outside or it's too hot for you outside, then let's not make a goal that we're going to walk outside. Let's make a goal for something that we're actually going to do. If it doesn't bother you or you like it or you can safely exercise in those temperatures, then let's build you a plan that you can do that way. All right, Kevin, what question do we have next? This one says, I usually keep my grandchildren after school and my 12-year-old granddaughter was recently diagnosed with COVID. Should I take Paxlovid. Mm. Well, I hope that your granddaughter is doing well, and uh, I hope that you are doing uh, well as well. So let's talk about what Paxlovid is. So Paxlovid 
Is the oral medication you or oral antiviral used to treat COVID? So Paxlovid is not approved for what we call post-exposure prophylaxis, which means after you've been exposed to something, just go ahead and taking it to keep you from getting it, which can be a little bit confusing because we're used to Tamiflu, right, which was um, or is a medication that can be used to treat the flu, uh, but it can be used for post-exposure prophylaxis uh, in folks uh, and, and taking it before you get it. Paxlovid is indicated for the actual treatment of COVID-19. Um, and so if you turn positive, then absolutely have that conversation with your healthcare provider about whether you would qualify for Paxlovid. It's usually um, recommended for those that are um, higher risk of severe COVID-19. So folks who have chronic medical conditions who are older or even younger folks, but that have a lot of chronic uh, medical conditions that have been linked to worse outcomes. The benefit of Paxlovid is in decreasing hospitalizations. So it keeps you from from getting uh, sick enough to, to need uh, the hospital for a good chunk of folks. Now, just like Tamiflu for the flu needs to be started within a certain time frame, Paxlovid does as well. Um, Tamiflu is within 48 hours of flu onset. Uh, Paxlovid is five days from onset, so you've got a little bit wider window there. But Paxlovid does have a fair amount of medication interactions. Um, because of the way it is metabolized in our body, it can impair the, the metabolism of some of your other medications and make the doses be too high. So you always want to make sure that you provide your healthcare provider with a full list of your medications. Um, because it may be as simple as just holding that medication while you're taking the Paxlovid. Probably the one that is most common, especially here in Mississippi, is going to be cholesterol medication like Lipitor, Crestor, um, though that uh, should not be taken with Paxlovid, but there's no need to hold it days before you start Paxlovid or multiple, you know, time after it. So um, go ahead and talk to your healthcare provider about that. They can give you specific instructions on um, when you can start to retake those medications after that. Um, some blood thinners it will interact with as well. So it's just a good idea to always speak with your healthcare provider about that. And then in terms of side effects with Paxlovid, the thing that I hear the most is uh, altered taste. So COVID's already doing that to you a little bit, but it's more of a metallic-y taste uh, with Paxlovid and a little bit of um, GI upset as well, a little bit of diarrhea, sometimes some nausea as well. Um, so usually recommend eating with that. So in this particular case, you probably don't qualify for Paxlovid yet, but if you do turn positive, go ahead and reach out to your healthcare provider about that. But I hope your family is doing well. All right, before we get to our next emailed question, we do have a caller on the line. We'll go down to Mendenhall and say, good morning, Bethany. How can I help you? Hey, I had I just had a couple questions. Sure. Um, I know you talked about tofu before. Yeah. And I wanted to start eating tofu, but can I eat it raw on a salad or does it need to be cooked? Um, and also um, about what do you think about multivitamins? I take quite a few. I take mm -hmm. uh, omega-3, I take multi, and I take um, biotin. Mm-hmm and uh, probiotic, and I was thinking about adding horsetail. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that, and I'll get off and listen. Sure. Thank you. All right. Wonderful. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Welcome to the tofu party. Uh, I adore tofu. And so the first question you had was, can you eat it raw? And you can. Um, and there are actually some uh, lovely recipes out there using more of a silken variety of tofu and just kind of putting some soy sauce around it, some sesame seeds on top, um, and, and breaking it down. But I actually like... For a salad, 
I like baked tofu on a salad because it makes it a little and I don't even want to use the word chewy because that doesn't sound like it would be good, but it is a little bit meatier texture to it. Tofu has a lot of water content in it. And so if you don't squeeze out a lot of that water, it may make your salad a little soggy. Um, but I buy the already uh, already made baked tofu in uh, in the refrigerated section, there's usually one that's like a barbecue flavor. There's a lemon pepper one. Um, and that way it's already had a lot of the moisture squished out of it. Um, but the easiest, most gentle way to introduce you to tofu would be a tofu scramble um, because it is so easy to do and resembles a food that we're fairly familiar with, which would be scrambled eggs. Um, and you don't have to do a lot of that pressing beforehand to get a lot of that water out. You just kind of crumble it and then squeeze out that water and then uh, add your spices. My favorites are salt, pepper, garlic powder, and a little bit of turmeric to make it yellow. Now, in terms of multivitamins, first things first, we take or I take a food first approach in terms of vitamins and minerals. And so I would want to look at your total diet and see if there were gaps in that diet that I felt like might be leading to some nutritional deficiencies, as well as looking at your overall medical uh, history. You mentioned omega-3s that you were taking. So in terms of heart health, do we already have high cholesterol? Do we have a strong family history of that? And do we feel like we're not meeting our omega-3 um, intake from nutrition from the foods that we're eating, which are going to be your um, fattier fishes as well as your nuts and seeds. So walnuts, almonds, um, uh, chia seeds, flax seeds, those types of things, and then see if we need to supplement an omega-3 that way. Um, a multivitamin uh, in a woman of childbearing age is a good idea from a folic acid standpoint because we want to make sure that we have um, adequate folic acid on board to prevent neural tube defects um, in uh, growing babies. So a multivitamin probably okay. When we start to see individual supplements added in, um, I always go, do we really need this? Is this something that we're missing from a nutrient standpoint or do we have a documented deficiency in this, then adding it in uh, may be a good idea. But be careful with your supplements and make sure that you're getting them from a reputable supplier. Um, supplements are not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. So I always look for um, the little label on the side of the supplement that says USP verified. That means it has gone through an additional uh, check to make sure that what is in the bottle is actually what is in the bottle and not just ground up sticks, that it's actually what it is. Um, so looking for that USP verified seal and then really making sure that you also um, tell your healthcare provider about any of the supplements that you're on um, to make sure they're not going to interact with any medications or with any lab tests. In particular, I heard you mention the one biotin. Biotin can interact with thyroid testing. So if you're having um, your thyroid checked uh, from a blood uh, standpoint, like a thyroid stimulating hormone, biotin can uh, skew the results there. So just make sure that your healthcare provider has that full list of medications, including supplements um, when you do that. All right, hope it answered your question. If not, you can send me an email fit at mpbonline.org. What do you have next for me, Kevin? All right. This one says, I saw a magazine article about gut health, mm. but what does that mean? And how do I know if my gut is healthy and happy? <laughs> well, it is definitely a buzzword. We hear that so much. Um, this promotes gut health. And so I, I mean, 
how do we know if our gut is nice and healthy? Well, uh, the first way to know is how's your poop, right? You know, really looking at your bowel movements and are they uh, easy to pass, nice and soft, no blood in it, um, those types of things. So that's kind of the first way. And then any symptoms, right? Do you feel bloated? Do you feel... um, uh, do does certain foods bother you? Do you have a lot of indigestion? Do you have problems with constipation or diarrhea? Those types of things. But gut health is essentially talking about the types of bacteria that we have in our gut. So we all have gut bacteria. They're all in there. Um, but depending on one kind of geographic location And then what we're exposed to in terms of foods can vary or shift the types of uh, bacteria that we have in our gut. And some of those are health-promoting bacteria, and some of them are not so great for that Um, and can cause a lot more of um, just GI Uh, symptoms not feeling well, but then also impact our metabolic health. Um, So when we have kind of bad gut bacteria or some of the the less helpful strains of gut bacteria, um, the way that they kind of ferment some of the food that we eat can actually increase our risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, We also talk about that gut-brain connection and that um, a lot of our serotonin, which we talked last week with Dr. Mangum on, um, as being that, that hormone that helps us feel good in terms of of mental health um, can be affected by the types of gut bacteria that we have, as well as our immune system. A lot of our um, how we defend against um, pathogens begins in our gut. And so having the right mix of gut bacteria is really important for um, not just uh, having good, easy bowel movements and no bloating, um, but also for our heart health and for our uh, mental health and for our immune health. So uh, how do we build good, healthy gut bacteria? Well, the first is what are we exposing it to, right? And so the most kind of readily uh, apparent thing that comes to mind is medications, right? And the use of antibiotics, because antibiotics are going to, depending on the type of antibiotic, may negatively impact some of the bacteria that you have in your gut, which is often why antibodies give us diarrhea. Um, it can be why we wind up with yeast infections after certain antibiotics, because we throw the equilibrium off down there. Now, that is not me saying don't use antibiotics. That is me saying use antibiotics correctly, Right. Um, Because antibiotics are for bacterial infections. They are not for viral infections. And so the vast majority of your runny nose, stuffy nose, sore throat, all of that stuff is viral. And so if you have just had the sniffles or a cold for a day or two, uh, really try to avoid using an antibiotic unless it is proven that it is bacterial, right? For the regular common cold um, or for just regular sore throats, antibiotics are usually not needed. Now, strep is going around like crazy right now, which is a bacterial infection of your throat. Go to your healthcare provider, get tested. If you have strep, absolutely take the antibiotics, but not every cold needs one. The second piece is making sure we feed those bacteria the right thing. And bacteria like 
um, what we call prebiotics, which are the things that they munch on. So probiotics get a lot of, of talk, and that's the actual healthy bacteria um, being uh, taken in um, either through a fermented food like a yogurt or kimchi or kombucha or something like that. And then there's the prebiotic, which is going to be the food that the bacteria eat on. And they like fiber. So if we're trying to build a healthy gut microbiome for a happy, healthy gut, then plants are where it's at, right? So making sure that we have a diversity of plant foods, so multiple types of fruits and vegetables in our diet on a daily basis is one of the easiest ways to set yourself up for a happy, healthy gut. All right, I think we've got time for one more before we end the show. What you got, Kevin? This one says, I've been dealing with plantar fasciitis for a few months, and it's really impacting my exercise. I've tried shoe inserts. What else is there? Well, I feel you because I, too, have plantar fasciitis, and it can be a beast. So the plantar fascia is a strip of of kind of tissue on the bottom of your foot. And when it gets inflamed, it traditionally causes heel pain and usually what we call startup pain. So when you've been sitting for a long period of time or when you just first get out of the bed in the morning, those first couple of steps are really, really, really painful. And it gets better throughout the day as that fascia kind of stretches out. And so that should kind of point to one of the treatment strategies, which is stretching and keeping that fascia kind of stretched out. So um, some of my favorites are using a tennis ball underneath your foot and just kind of roll, like when you're sitting at your desk, rolling your foot back and forth over that tennis ball. Um, uh, Cold therapy also helps decrease some of that inflammation in there. So freezing um, a bottle of water in the freezer and then again putting that on the floor and rolling your foot back and forth on that. Um, and then there are some stretches that you can look up online, just plantar fasciitis stretches, which are usually going to um, feature heavily on your calves and making sure that your calf muscles are stretched out because a tight calf um, will lead to um, extra strain and, and stress on that plantar fascia. Now, you mentioned shoe inserts. I would want to know what kind and where you fitted for those, or did you just Google some shoe inserts and get those? Um, because it, it does matter. We want to have the correct arch support and the correct um, distribution of height in that insert to correct any um, deficiency in how you're standing or walking. So working with um, a shoe store that kind of specializes in, in athletic shoe inserts can be a good option. Um, But sometimes we have to do custom fit um, orthotics for plantar fasciitis. So if you've already gone the route of having like an officially fit shoe insert, then it may be time to talk to your orthopedist or your primary care provider about an orth, a a custom molded orthotic to fit into your shoe. Um, But you got to kind of keep at it. You got to keep up with those stretches on a daily basis. Um, Keep up with making sure you're moving your foot back and forth and that you have really good arch support there. Um, and if those things don't kind of progress it out, really asking for um, to see a physical therapist where they can work specifically with you on more intensive exercises to help uh, relieve that particular situation. And then sometimes we actually have to go in a um, special shoe or a boot to allow that uh, to rest there. So I hope that answers your questions. If you need more information about any of the topics we talked about today, please send me an email. And you don't have to only do that when we're on the air. That thing is open 
oven all the time. So send me an email to fit at mpbonline.org. Thank you for listening today and make sure that you tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup and download our podcast so you never miss an episode. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.